You ever had a, a moment where you had to put something on the line for Jesus Christ? Maybe a situation where you had to take a stand that was either not popular or it was going to cost you something? I, I can remember many uh, crisis moments in my Christian life, but one in particular was was early and it was uh, with my my boss and co-workers whenever our company was, was sold. They'd given all the, the senior staff uh, buyout offers for our, our non-compete contracts, and they gave us one day in order to consider it. And, and the attorneys added the threat that if we didn't sign off by the end of the day, the deal was off. And by the way, it was an all-for-nothing for, for deal. So one CEO and five vice presidents, all of us had to agree or none of us got the deal. And it was a considerable sum of money, uh, a year and a half uh, worth of, of salary um, versus you walked away uh, unable to work in your field for two years because you had a two-year non-compete and no compensation. And I was unsure of, of uh, whether it was the right thing to do, and I wanted to seek some counsel and, and pray about it. And so I, I told the, the company attorney that I couldn't give him an answer that day. I found out about noon, everyone else had already agreed but me. I remember being called into one of the vice president's office who I'd worked with side by side for a long time, and, and he attempted to pressure me to, to sign, and, and I, I just told him, I, I don't know whether I'm for or against it, I just, I really want to pray about it, I, it's a big decision. He got very angry whenever I refused, and I refused. I can't repeat the exact words that he said, <laughs> but it was something like this. If you let your Christian nonsense cost me and the other vice presidents this kind of money, I promise you, you will pay. And that was the end of the conversation. Um, he was a friend, or at least I thought he was, and so I surely didn't want to hurt him or anybody else, but... But I didn't sign. They didn't pull the deal, by the way. Um, it was still there the next morning after I prayed about it, and my pastor gave me good counsel, and, and the Lord ended up using that as some of the ways that we ended up providing to go to seminary. But as a young Christian, it was a crisis moment for me. Now that is very far from being threatened with a fiery furnace, as we'll see in Daniel 3 this morning. But it was a moment that required courage to do what I thought was, was right in the, in the moment. And it's more in line with something that you're likely to, to face. The Christian faith requires courage. And God builds that metal through, through small trials and more small trials or smaller trials so that you develop spiritual muscles that can stand when the world asks you to bow in big things. Those are not insignificant moments. Those are moments that when they're added together produce spiritual muscle. And in the moment when the music plays, the question that you will have to answer is, will you do what you believe to be right? And the only way to ensure that is to develop biblical conviction before that moment ever comes. And that's the target of Daniel chapter 3. You remember the book of Daniel has two goals. It's, it will teach you how, to, how you're to live as strangers and pilgrims in a world that's not your home. And secondly, it will tell you the historical event that, that's coming, the, the, the reign of the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 3 focuses on the first of those Two, two goals. It teaches us how we're to live while we're, we're waiting on God's kingdom to come. And it reminds us that most of the time that will put you at odds with the, the kingdoms of this world. If Daniel 2 was a beginner's course on world history, Daniel 3 displays the God who can intervene in that history and reveals the courage that you need while you're trusting Him to, to do so. I'm afraid many Christians think the world is more like an interesting neighbor than a hostile adversary. I mean, they know that it's not their home, but they would enjoy a visit every now and then. 
And one of the last things that Jesus told his disciples before he died was to, was to correct that error in John 15. Think of how blunt this statement is before Christ goes to the cross. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That's a strong word, isn't it? The servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. But I actually think that Jesus' echo of the same truth from another perspective sometimes confuses us, but, but is just as profound. Listen to Luke 12. This is the Lord speaking. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Wait a minute. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And Jesus says, do you think that that's what I've come to do? No, I tell you, but rather division. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The passage in John 15 is a reminder that the world is in opposition to Christ... And Luke 12, the passage is a reminder to you that choosing to follow Christ sets you in opposition to the world, possibly even family. And we'll see a graphic illustration of that in Daniel 3 in another mesmerizing story. Now, last week I reminded you that when you're dealing with biblical narrative, you want to take the whole story and you're looking for the, for the main point. And so we'll take all of Daniel 3. Sidney Gradena said, Our task is not to offer moralistic birdshot that barely scratches the surface, but to offer the bullet-shaped point of the passage that penetrates the heart. That's what we're hunting for. That's what we're looking for in Daniel 3. And this story is very familiar, but it starts and ends with a royal decree. And, and what happens in between these two royal decrees teaches us something about the courage that it takes to serve the only true God who is able to deliver his people. In fact, the entire story centers around one question that's then answered at the end of the, of the chapter. Daniel 3.15 and 3.29 are the key verses. Look at Daniel 3.15. I know this is the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace. But here is the point of the story, verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And here is the question. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The entire point of this story is answering that one question. Is there a God who is mightier than than all? Is there a God who can deliver? Is there a God who will be faithful to his people when they're faithful to him? And even when they're unfaithful to him, because here are the Jews in the middle of Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the answer to that comes to us on the winds of the backstory of the image and the all of the people being gathered together. Nebuchadnezzar becomes so enamored by, the, by this statue that he sees in his dream, and the fact that he's the head of gold, he makes one, and he commands everyone to worship it. It's a statue that represents the human kingdoms of, of this world in, in direct rebellion against God. And you know the story climaxes in the deliverance of, from the fiery furnace, but it ends with the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's question, the one that he asked in verse 15, to these three men, he answers himself in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Kind of like bookends. Therefore I made a decree that any people and nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. That's what Daniel 3 declares. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the Most High God, and He is able to deliver so you can courageously trust Him. There are five scenes. You probably know them. You've read ahead. The first one is on the plain of Dura with this 
massive statue. That's the first seven verses. The second scene is in the private presence of the king where, where these accusations against the Hebrews are made. The, the third scene is, is a makeshift courtroom between Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael where the charges are, are, are granted or given. And then the fourth scene is in the middle of a smelting furnace. And then the fifth scene is again before the crowds and the statue as the king makes this proclamation. We'll call it five lessons that mean to teach us courage to serve the God who can deliver. Those lessons come to us in the creature's image, in this common accusation that's made, in this critical trial that we observe, the celestial deliverance from the furnace, and then the clarifying answer that's given at the end. Let's look at the, the first one. First lesson is from the creature's image. If you didn't get those, you'll get them as we, we move along here. Look, if you would, at verse 1 of Daniel 3. Notice how this story starts. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of of Babylon. So he starts here with a, a doppelganger or a duplicate statue. And with the crisis of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, troubling dream averted and Daniel and his friends exalted, we come to another predicament in, in the book. Nebuchadnezzar becomes so enamored with the statue that he sees he makes one. Uh, verse 1, you, you immediately hear the word image which is to remind us of the dream in chapter 2. It's mentioned five times in chapter 2. In chapter 3, it occurs 11 times, this image. There's repetition. You probably have read chapter 3, and you go, why is he saying the same thing again? I mean, we already know the people that are gathered. We already know the instruments that are there. We've already heard five times in the first seven verses that this was a statue that he set up. He set up. And it's an image. It's an image. It's an image. We don't know exactly when this event takes place, but two options are noteworthy. It could have been after the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Jerusalem was actually invaded three times. You remember Daniel starts with the, with the first invasion where only some of the treasure, uh, temple treasures are taken, only some of the people are taken, and, and he sets up a, a puppet king there, and that doesn't go well. They keep rebelling three times. He has to come back, and the third time he just wipes them out and deports everybody. That's in 586 B.C. Babylonian records also indicate, though, there was an uprising that was put down about ten years into Nebuchadnezzar's rule. But both of those would have been good events for, for what we're reading here. So that's about ten or fifteen years, if it's either one of those, after his dream. Sufficient time for Nebuchadnezzar to remember the dream but forget the God that revealed it to him. He's only concerned about that he's the head of gold. Regardless of when it was, it's not abnormal for a king to do something like this, to, to keep a, uni, a country unified and ensure his, his throne remains secured. I mean, this assembly would be a fitting way to declare a national day of unity. We're told the statue was located on the plain of Dura in, in verse 3, which is likely about four miles outside of Babylon. It wasn't in the city, it was outside of the city, so they could build the statue, and it was on a big plain so they could gather thousands and thousands of people and, and do this, this big event. It's interesting, a French archaeologist named Aupair discovered the remains of a massive pedestal in 1862 that was 45 feet square and 20 feet high, that held a colossal image in the plain of Dura. Hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's statue fits the massive spec spec uh, specifications. Um, 90 feet, which is nine stories, but only nine feet wide. I mean, think of a sheet of plywood with, with another foot on it. That's not the largest structure in the ancient world. Uh, Colossus of Rhodes was was 105 feet, built in 300 B.C. And you can think probably of the Sphinx in Egypt, 66 feet high. You should probably think, because it's tall and skinny, like an obelisk um, type of structure with, with human features. Think the Washington Monument with embedded arms and, you know, and a head. We, we don't know what it looked like for sure. 
He was probably in the likeness of, of, of Marduk, the patron god of Babylon, or, or Nebuchadnezzar himself. Maybe his golden head was on it. But more than all that, what you're supposed to think about, where your mind is supposed to go, is another tall tower that was also set up on the plain of Babylon in Genesis 11. In the plain, in the land of Shinar, Babel, the people of the earth gathered and said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth in direct rebellion against God. God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And they said, No. We will go to a city and we will make a tower and a name for ourselves. It's Nebuchadnezzar's turn to build a man-exalting tower in Babel in Shinar. And that's why the repetition, he set up, he set up, he set up. And men have been building those towers ever since, whether they're in this type of structure or not. Look, if you would, at verse 2. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices, the magistrates and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That's repeated five times. And he gathers all the prefects and the governors and the counselors from his kingdom to worship, and they came. And so here's the repetition. Then the satraps, verse 3, and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers, the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The repetition is to set the scene. This is a nationwide dedication at the very spot that all false religions, all man-made religion began, this self-exaltation of man in Genesis 11, and all of the pagan kingdoms are there again. And everyone is doing it. You should probably think of like one of those mass military gatherings that you see on TV where, where everybody dances around like synchronized ants in front of the, the hill. All the military, all of the, the government brass, they pay homage to Xi Jinping of, of China and they, they march all day long, or Mussolini in, in World War II. That, think of that kind of gathering when, when you read this about Nebuchadnezzar. And the list includes people from all positions, uh, the lowest to the highest. And it even includes people that don't want to be there. I mean, look, look at the decree that's given in, in verse 4. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You're commanded, watch this, old peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. There are many different nationalities present, even different languages. I mean, this includes, this gathering includes all the people that Nebuchadnezzar has conquered. And it was a display of loyalty. It's propaganda, and it's also purposeful. I mean, it united Babylon. It was the purpose of uniting Babylon around one thing, the king and his policies. And to be clear, you didn't have to give up your own god. You just had to worship the king and, and his God. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis said, burn a pinch of incense to the king's God and regime and you can go happily back to your favorite religious superstition. The demand, though, was the sound of music was to be replaced with the sound of worship. That was the decree that was given. You notice it's all kinds of music at, at the end of verse 5. You can go through this list of of a horn and a flute and a lyre, what all those are. But these are the only instruments used. At the end of verse 5, it talks about a symphony, all other instruments that weren't even listened. So you don't picture like a small house band. This is a full symphony. And the penalty for disobeying this decree is given in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning very furnace. Now, if the pomp and circumstance and the peer pressure wasn't enough to bring conformity, there was a graphic object lesson placed on the plane. And you get this scene. 
This is in a plain. It's a very wide place. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are there before this massive, skinny, and yet nine-story tall statue. And right over next to it is a blazing furnace already lit with the smoke bellowing out the top. And the band is there. The symphony is there. Massive. Hundreds of people, no doubt, ready to, to say, okay, when they cue, it's your turn. It was probably the kiln that was required for making the bricks and smelting the metal for the gold that went into making the statue. But it was a convenient means of punishment and pretty terrifying. It was probably in the shape of a beehive or, as one said, like an uh, old-fashioned glass milk bottle at a large opening at the top where you put in the bricks or you put in the the ore, and then at the bottom there was an opening where you fed it with, with charcoal and... Those kind of kilns could reach about 1,800 degrees. So this is not a campfire. Verse 7 quickly follows all of that detail. Notice how this scene ends in verse 7. Show you how the people responded in their devotion. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, languages fell down Worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As soon as they heard the sound, they were on their faces licking dirt. That's the idea here. I mean, notice the emphasis. As soon as they heard, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped, not just faithful Babylonians, but even the conquered people. All except three Hebrew men. The second lesson is an all-too-common accusation. The accusers are named in this next scene, and the allegation is laid out. Look at you at verse 8. Therefore, at at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Did you remember the interplay between Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men in chapter 2? Well, it's in the background here again. You've heard the saying, when at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Uh, The astrologers live to fight another day, and here they are, saved by Daniel's God, by the way. But the astrologers were were the head of the Babylonian wise men, and they were not too keen on having Daniel and his three friends be appointed to leadership positions because of the dream. And so here's their chance to do something about it. I mean, just think of the infighting and nastiness that you get to see sometimes in governmental agencies or political entities. And if you've worked there, you know it is a nasty place. These wise men are the deep state. They're the hangovers from the former king's regime. And and they don't like the power in the new king's hands. They surely don't like him exalting four Jews that showed them up on a dream that made them look as useless as they really are. Never mind, Daniel and his God saved their life, but this is their opportunity to pounce. And so they run the news of Daniel's three friends out in front of the king in in this accusation. Now, they don't even need an anonymous source to do it. I mean, these men incriminated themselves. The word that's used here for denounce them or brought charges literally means to to eat them to pieces. It shows the, the disdain that they had. Now, some have asked, where is Daniel? And the answer, I think, is found in the last verse of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 49. When Daniel and his friends are exalted, they're separated. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was in the king's court. So they were separated in their roles, and the loyalty test was directed at the provinces where these three men would have, would have resided. Maybe Daniel was back keeping court while this was taking place. We don't know. What we do know is he's not in the crowd bowing down. Look at the, these men, their, their syrupy approach whenever they, they make the allegations. Look at verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, live forever. 
Oh, king, live forever. My friend Joel James says, this is one of those nonsense things you say to a king that both of you know is not going to happen, but you have to say it anyway. And these men took great, great pleasure in sarcastically mouthing those words. They state their charges as if they're really on the king's side. And they think they have the high ground here. Look at verse 10. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the trigon and the psalter and the bagpipe and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the, the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the, the furnace. And notice their disdain in verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. These Jews, not even Babylonians, may we remind you, and may we also remind you that you are the one that put them there. They're questioning the king's judgment in a backdoor way where they can't be called out. It's like saying, it's evident that you made a mistake by listening to these men rather than, than us. And then they named the, the accusations. These men are insubordinate. They pay no attention to you. They're irreligious. They don't serve your gods. And they're insolent. They stick it in your face. They will not worship the image that you set up. And now Nebuchadnezzar is challenged with his law, his position, and his, his pride. This is not just about pagan religion anymore. It's a direct attack on Nebuchadnezzar and a rejection of Babylon itself. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this gathering. We are one, we are the world, we are Babylon, and we have one king, one head. You can see that taking place in our world, can't you? If you don't toe the cultural line, if you don't go along with what is politically correct, then you're attacking civilization itself. I mean, you must be snuffed out or the end of the world is going to occur. You kind of get that feeling, the way just so much vitriol. I mean, you're not just standing against actions or giving a different position on sexuality. You're standing against who we are as a nation. And so Nebuchadnezzar feels that same thing, and he's... He's forced to act. Here's this critical trial now. It moves into a makeshift courtroom. And there's the inquiry that he makes of the three Hebrews and then the offer that, that he gives them. And then finally their answer. Look, you would have verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar is in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And Nebuchadnezzar is extremely angry. But I would say more so with the wise men and being shown up, secondarily with these three men who may give his enemies a chance and an opportunity to make him look bad. I think you can see that by the fact that he gives them an opportunity and he asks them the question, is this true? This is not because he, he loves these men. I mean, pagan kings don't do that. I mean, if they're challenged, you're gone. I mean, the reason that he gives them this opportunity, this offer to bow in verse 15, is not so much pity for the men, but to remove the accusation against his judgment that the wise men are making. I mean, if the three bowed, then he could turn the tables on his nemesis and say, look at the accusing astrologers. You bring this kind of accusation to me, there's no issue here, you're the problem. It's also why the king is so livid whenever the three refuse. Not just because of defiance, but because it made him look doubly bad. And then the astrologers will win a political victory. But in his arrogance, he also includes the theme question of the chapter. Look at verse 15. Here's the one we read to begin with. Here's the offer and the question. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Why would you worship something that man has made? Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Here is the moment of truth. He sets it up. He gives the threat. He thumps his chest. He reminds them of his power. And then he asks, And what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Don't fail me. Because it will not go well for you. And no one will save you. You think of the pressure that these three men faced in this moment. These are not old men. I mean, even if it is 10 years past, I mean, you're talking about a 28-year-old, so upper 20s. They faced pressure from the authority. They faced pressure from the assembly. Pressure from accusations and then the threat of assassination. And, and may I say to you, that's exactly where it will come from in your life. The word king is mentioned six times in verses 1 through 7 to emphasize his authority. And you will be tempted to submit to other authorities instead of God when your boss or your country, uh, company or your government uses the levers of power to move you. When it gives you money to change behavior, when it takes money to discourage behavior, when it makes edicts and commands that bring with it the threats of loss, you'll feel pressure. Pressure will also come from the masses. There are thousands and thousands of people gathered, and every set of eyes was pressure to conform, and you'll be tempted to conform to the culture. And when the headwinds of resistance begin to blow on your biblical sail, you'll find yourself asking the question, Am I right? I mean, am I being too narrow here? I mean, everyone else seems to be going in a different direction. Everyone else to think, seems to think this is no big deal, or everyone else seems to think this is a big deal. But I don't. And the pressure will come from accusations. And you'll be tempted to, to placate those and go along to get along and remove animosity. It'll come from enemies. No one likes enemies. So you'll think if you just give them what they want, they'll go away, but they won't go away. They'll take more. And then you'll have lost your testimony in the process. And the pressure will come from assassination and threats, like in verses 13 through 15. You'll be tempted by threatening rhetoric of what they'll do to you if you don't do what they want. You'll be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace of public scorn. You'll be roasted with the words of character assassination or worse. Dale Ralph Davis said, In those moments, all kinds of justifications can come to, to your mind. I mean, we need to remain in these places for the sake of the other Jews to help them. We don't need to... To compromise, I mean, we've been exalted to, to these, these roles in Babylon. The king is really kind. He, he gave us a second chance. I mean, shouldn't we, we honor him? I mean, we can engage in a moment of silence before, before the idol, but we won't mean it because we really know that there's no God here. Or This is our job. I mean, we have this official capacity. Even though we're personally opposed to it, we'll do this in our official capacity, although it will separate uh, what we really believe in our heart. But these three men never lost sight that the issue was obedience, not deliverance. And that's always the issue. Obedience and not deliverance. Worship and not security honor and not safety, and in between the services, between 8 service and, and 10.30, I was in my office, I was praying over those specific things. Lord, I am speaking these words to another group of people, and I see it right here in your word. The issue is obedience, not deliverance, worship and not security, honor and not safety. Help me to do the first of those and not capitulate to the last, because my flesh will want to be delivered. And so their response is given in verse 16. Look at verse 16. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. The king's listening, and he probably was pleased at first. And then he hears the rest, verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three men say, King, you can save your quarter for the jukebox. We'll tell you what we will do. They're not being arrogant or apologetic. The idea is that they had made up their minds before the crowd bowed, and there's no way that they could change that now. Daniel chapter 3, verse 5. Verse 5 is worded in a particular way when it's setting up the scene that there's this image on the plain of Shinar, just like in, in, in Babylon, in, in Genesis 11, and it's set up by men, and the command was that they're to fall down and worship the golden statue. When you hear those words, fall down, bow down, and worship the golden statue, you should hear the Ten Commandments playing in the background, saying the opposite. You should hear Exodus 20 and verse 5. You shall not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing favor to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. That's the music that the Israelites heard. They they heard the thunder of Sinai as the percussion, the voice of Moses as the chorus and the echo of true Israelites reciting the Shema every morning as the choir. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And violating that law is what got them to Babylon to begin with. That's why Judah was given into the hands of Babylon. It worshipped false gods. And I want you to notice that they had no Pollyanna promise in their minds because they were taking a stand that somehow God would deliver them from sure death. They knew that God would deliver them from death or in death. Whichever way he chose was up to him, which was why I was praying between the services. But regardless, they would not bow. They could not bow. Their words were a declaration of faith. They knew that God could deliver them because He'd done that many times with Israel in the past. Uh, the Red Sea comes to mind. And yet they did not necessarily believe He would spare their lives. The choice was entirely up to Him, and whatever He chose was good. Their choice was to believe and obey, meaning refuse to bow. And may I say it's exactly the same for for, for you and I. Whatever God chooses to do and to bring is is none of our concern. Our only concern is to do what He says and trust Him. That's it. That simplifies everything. We don't need to understand why the trials come or or what God's going to do from the trial when we get out of the trial. We don't need to understand any of that. We just need to simply trust God who allows the trial and say whatever you choose to do in it and through it is up to you. Jerome said that the statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego makes to the king was meant to be a defense of God. Just so Nebuchadnezzar didn't think he he was right if God allowed them to die, let it be known to you, king, that if we do die, it's not a matter of God's inability, but rather his sovereign will. It's exactly what Job said. Didn't he say the same thing? Job 13, 15? Though he slay me, yet I will what? Trust him. Do you know Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 10, 28? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar intends to do, kill the body. It's the fourth lesson. It comes in this celestial deliverance. Look at you at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury... And the expression of his faith was changed. 
against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind three men and to cast them into the burning furnace. It says Nebuchadnezzar's face changed. He goes from a manipulative smile, communicating, come on guys, let's just go along here. Literally his visage was altered. And his anger turns from the Chaldeans to these three men for their defiance and making him look bad. I mean, he goes from kingly composure to despotic rage. Think from uh, Prince Philip of England to WWE. I mean, he orders this seven times hotter, bind, the, uh, bind them with the strongest men, throw them in, and, and it's so hot that it kills the men. Now, don't miss the detail, though. When the story slows down or gives lots of information, it's for a reason. It tells us what the men were wearing. Did you notice that? It, it talks about the, the fact that, they're, that they have uh, robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes. I mean, Daniel's not concerned about current fashion. That's how they go into the fire. He gives you that detail because they'll come out of the fire with, with not one of those things burned or singed, and, and they'll also come out with, with their bindings undone. Look at verse 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. It says they fell into the middle of it. The furnace is probably on a hill, built into a hillside. It's beehive looking. You walk up to the side and you can access it from the top. So they throw him in, enable the soldiers to walk up there. It's opening at the bottom, which is how Nebuchadnezzar is able to to look in where you feed the charcoal, and Nebuchadnezzar's preparing to see these men consumed as human torches, and he's not prepared for what he, he sees next. He's astonished. Quite honestly, look at verse 22, or 24. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said, true, O king. Of course, you'd say anything to this guy, right? Did we see ten in there? Yeah, we, I, absolutely, we saw ten. It says the king was startled and he jumped to his feet in amazement. He desired somebody to even check his eyes. He asked the advisors, I mean, had we really thrown three men into the fire? Did we make a mistake? Did one of those guys that, that, that actually got consumed in, in the flames, did he fall in too? And it was so miraculous it started me, exclaimed, look, there are four men in the fire with the ropes burned away and they're walking around alive in the flames. And the fourth one is like the son of the gods. Verse 25. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Was it Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ? Likely. But the being is called an angel in verse 28. Either way, this was miraculous and God did it. And that's the point. And you say, how is it possible? I mean, how is this possible? I can get my mind around Jonah and the, and the great fish. You know, we call it a whale. It's a great fish. And so I get it. Okay, the guy's swimming around. I've seen how big a whale is. Comes with a plankton, accidentally swallows the guy. And, he, and, he, and, and there's maybe an air pocket in there. And, you know, he gets vomited out close to... I mean, that... But how is this possible? How does somebody go into an 1,800-plus degree kiln and not be burned? Well, you'll find no natural explanation for it. It's a miracle, pure and simple. And before you dismiss a miracle, you should consider something. A lot of times we marvel at miracles and think nothing of God's divine power that we observe on a daily basis. I mean, let me ask you, which is more difficult to do? Create fire to begin with or protect somebody from it? Which requires more power? To make the sun and the moon and the stars and hold them in their place to where they function without any fault... Or have one of them point to the Christ child in Bethlehem. Which is harder, to create the process of evaporation and rain and clouds and climate and lightning and water and winds or, or to calm a storm on the sea? 
It takes no more effort for God to stop the storm than, than it does to create the natural processes for the storm to begin with. You see, with miracles, you don't have an intellectual problem as in how could that happen. You have a sin problem rooted in your unbelief. You don't want there to be a creator with that kind of power because then you know you're going to stand before him one day. Can you take for granted the amazing and even miraculous things he does on a daily basis and think nothing of them? I mean, think about what's happening even this morning. My lips are moving, creating distinct noises, sometimes with a West Virginia accent, most of the time with a West Virginia accent. And they're blended together as speech. And that speech makes languages that make sense. And, and you're sitting there with my voice vibrating miniature bones in, in your ears, and that's magnified by, by an eardrum. And those vibrations send a signal to your brain where, where you hear my words. And then calculate that into language that makes sense. And then you process those as rational thoughts. And, and those rational thoughts lead you to make volitional choices that affect your soul. Where do you think all that comes from? It comes from the Creator who made you. The one who calls you from the book of Daniel to hear Him and believe Him and obey Him. You see, we don't have a miracle problem. We have a sin problem. And If you reject such a Creator with all of the evidence and mercy and grace, do you think He'll say, it's okay? Not even Nebuchadnezzar does that. Look if you would at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. As one said, they can obey this command. Now Nebuchadnezzar is convinced who the Most High God is. Notice the term that this pagan kings use, servants of the Most High God. He calls them to come out and they do. And he also now knows the answer to his own question. If these men were protected for refusing to bow to him in the image of his God, then it was evident that their God was more powerful than all. And notice who is the first to witness and hear the declaration. Look, if you would, at verse 27. We have one more repetition in the satraps. And the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of, sm of fire had come upon them. The first witnesses of the whole nation, all the people that were gathered together, assembled together to declare that Nebuchadnezzar was great and worship this statue that he set up. And instead of seeing the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, they're the first to witness God's deliverance of his people, and they end up watching their king worship Israel's God. And they worship him too. Marvel at him. And then in verse 28 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar answers his own question. If you've read 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people or nation or language that, that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and his houses laid in ruins. And here's the answer. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And the result was not their death or even just their deliverance. Verse 30 says they were promoted. Remember what he said before? Which God is able to deliver you out of my hand? He now declares it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's who. 
Did you know the New Testament says that's going to happen for everyone one day? The Bible says there's going to be another great gathering day that's going to be made up of thousands and millions. Men, small and great, living and dead. And in that day, books will be opened. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And many people today ask the question, what God is there really? I don't believe the Bible's real. Is Jesus really able to do anything to me if I reject him? And one day those men will answer that question themselves, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. And they'll declare that Jesus Christ is the Most High God. He's Lord over all. And in that confession, they'll be saying that the judgment that's coming is right. Let me tell you, there's a much better offer than waiting for that day. The same God of Daniel and his three friends, that same Jesus says that you can confess him now. And he'll even walk through the fiery furnace of life with you. That choice is up to you. If you follow him, it will require, require courage. You may not have peace with your neighbor, even your family. To as much as it is with you, you should be at peace with all men. But following Christ divides. But that's a much better scenario than being divided with those who are cast into outer darkness one day. Let's pray. Obedience over deliverance, Lord. I know it's not a one-moment trial. It's, as we said to begin with, uh, smaller ones that build up strength. Just like if we got on a weight bench and had 300 pounds put on there, it'd crush us, so you, you give us a smaller trial that we can handle and we have obedience. And that builds muscle and then a little more and a little more. But oh, Father, whenever the music plays, I want my feet to stand. I don't want my knees to bow. So I pray that you would help not only me, but everyone here. I also pray that those who are not in Christ, they would do the opposite. Their knees would bow right now to the King of Kings, you, Lord Jesus, so that he might be able to stand in this world. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.